Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, John Lawson, and joining me as always is my co-host, Matthew Fisher. And joining me again for the second time ever is a very special guest, Dr. Frank Salter, uh, former president of the British Australian community, is a Australian nationalist and political legend. Uh, he's been around the block and he's here today to share some of his wisdom with us, specifically as it pertains to uh, genetics and his scientific research. So welcome, guys. Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks uh, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to have you, Frank. How have you been? Uh, thanks. Thanks, Matthew. It's good to, good to hear that I've been around the block instead of just being old. Yeah, no, we prefer to use uh, around the block because you're a young <laughs> man, uh, barely a day over 20. At least that's how you look. So, uh, you know, yeah, good. Great. just keep well, you, that. You've made my day. You've made my day. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll begin by maybe I'll ask you, what's your history in academia? Where does the doctor at the start of your name come from? Um, are you healing people on a daily basis in a surgery or uh, is it something else? And if not, um, what's, your, what's your history in academia? No, the most I could claim in the medical direction is healing the soul of the nation, but that's just my aspiration. Well, thank you very much um, for that. So background, just quickly, I'm a, I'm a Westie. I'm a Westie, born in Maryland's in the Parramatta area, Western Sydney. Went to Maryland's primary, Parramatta High, then various universities, ending up at Sydney University, where I did my uh, my honours thesis. Finished in eighty in eighty two, um, and in eighty four, I began my postgraduate work in Brisbane the University of Griffith, Griffith University, at the time Australia's most radical university, ironically. Um, And then while there, I realised that uh, I had no chance, even after getting a doctorate, no chance of of making an academic career in Australia. So I'd have to go overseas. It just became obvious. And um, so I travelled over to overseas meetings and uh, met these amazing professors that I, the stuff of legend, uh, Edward O. Wilson, um, uh, Richard Dawkins, um, Bill Hamilton, just amazing characters. And one of them I met was the head of a, an institute in Germany. His name was Irenaeus Eibel Ibersfeld, a double barrel name, Irenaeus Eibel Ibersfeld. I call him Eibel. And I uh, showed him some of my research and he said, on the spot, he said, you must come to my institute. That was in 1989. Two years later, I arrived and it would just tra- transform my life. It would just change my life. From, from being among people who were so biologically illiterate, they, they actually just rejected it out of hand, fellow students and professors. I went to a place where my knowledge was, I had a lot to learn. It was clear when I brought things up there. People would say, yeah, obviously, obviously. <laughs> right. And uh, and uh, I could then grow because what I was doing, what I set my sights on was studying political phenomena using the, the knowledge of human nature, using behavioural biology, in other words, and there are several disciplines involved with that. There's there's genetics, behavioural genetics, um, you know, completely out of my league. Uh, and then there's ethology, 
And that's the discipline that I chose. Ethology just means the biological study of behavior, treating humans like any other organism. Okay. Um, and did you always have an interest so, in these two fields? In, uh, in did you always have an interest in biology and history and these sorts of fields? No, like not even at all. growing up, not or is it something you only developed as you got into university age? I just developed it in young adulthood. My interest was always physics, space. Um, you know, and I majored in physics at the at the HSC, and uh, I began studying engineering at university before switching over. And when I began studying uh, politics at uh, Sydney University, um, it just all the sociology and the various approaches that were taught to me just seemed just ridiculous. They didn't even discuss human nature. That it had no theory. The only theory they had of human nature was it had nothing to do with biology. Nothing to do. It's it's this is ideology. This is not not science or scholarship. Um, so that's the one thing they were they were um, certain about. Um, and but of course, I, you turn this on its head, uh, as you're saying. You uh, you I went completely the other way. I said, this is ridiculous. How can you understand? Um, how can you? How can we understand human behavior without without understanding human humans as an evolved species with its own nature, however flexible, still a human nature, and uh, and that was my pursuit. So I found myself in Germany, and while I was there, I was there for twenty years at the Max Planck Institute um, with people from all over Europe, some Americans, and. Uh, it was a fantastic, very creative environment. Eibel gave me freedom to choose my own topics and pursue my own interests. And uh, so it was, uh, it was very good. I wrote On Genetic Interests there, which is my most important work, most important book. Yeah, I was reading it uh, recently. It's a bit of a tough read. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not exactly a light reading. Yeah, sorry about Although it's, that. Although it's nothing, uh, it's not really a field that I have much experience in. Um, I'm trying to understand the best I can, and it is very interesting. Yeah, it combines, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it combines um, these various disciplines like genetics and so on, that of course, I'm not a professional in genetics at all. Uh, I, I had to consult uh, authorities and ask them, how would I solve this problem? How would I solve that problem? And sociology and so on. There are, there are various disciplines there. So it's, yeah, it is a bit heavy. But it's not a long book. It's, and it's got, so it, it connects um, things, phenomena that are not normally connected. Okay. So, you know, there's the central phenomenon that's relevant to this conversation and Western politics right now is diversity. What are the social impacts and psychological impacts of diversity, ethno-religious diversity? And we're told that it's only beneficial. There are only benefits from diversity. And my research indicates that it's overwhelmingly negative, the effects. So... Anyway, so there I was with a PhD from from Australia, and um, I launched and I found myself at a research institute overseas, uh, 
and meeting people from around the world in that field. So, for example, solving the mathematics, solving the um, genetics problem, it, it took uh, a leading geneticist called Henry Harpending, now deceased, and without him I certainly couldn't have completed that book on genetic interests. And it involved uh, knowing and meeting anthropologists and receiving wisdom from them. Um, but my, I was driven forward by the by my the problems that I set myself. You know, for example, diversity, the politics of diversity, how does it affect um, identity and social stability? And so I was drawing on these different disciplines, trying to understand the these effects and the, the result has been uh, will be published this year in uh, my third collected essays it's called the title is going to be um, human nature uh, sorry the national question and human nature biosocial perspectives and it's my third collected essays and it'll, it so far has 80 chapters some of them only one page so it's not that ma- that massive a volume, but it'll be a large volume. That's a relief. And uh, it's, it's not going to be uh, eight million pages long. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank goodness for that. Eighty chapters. No, no, no. But it's going to be substantial. Okay. And uh, I think it should be useful. There's a lot of light reading in there. There's some some policy applications, uh, some brief ones too, like letters to editors and. Things like that, as well as some some fairly heavy reading as well. So that should be useful. And as I understand it, your thesis in on genetic interests, and I presume that's going to carry over into this new book, um, was basically that the nation state and the nation itself is a vector by which uh, genes can uh, perpetuate to further generations and spread, um, and that it's a, a construct aimed at at that goal. Exactly, it's a construct, and um, uh, this comes. This is the uh, ethology and so and sociology coming in. Um, yeah, the the core the core thesis is that humans have reproductive interests. Let's let's call them genetic interests because according to modern biology, um, we are survival machines for our genes. This is very much Richard Dawkins and and uh, Edward Wilson and Co. So um, the modern understanding is called the neo-Darwinian synthesis where you take classic 19th century Darwinism and combine it with knowledge of genetics and the result is a synthesis called neo-Darwinism, new Darwinism. And the idea, it's an abstraction of our instinctive love of our children and our families and of our people and of humans at large. So I consider that large that large circle as well, the species circle. <clears throat> um, so on, the book, book is called On Genetic Interests and it looks at different levels or different circles where those genetic interests apply. The smallest is the self and individual reproduction. Next comes the family and, uh, you know, and the clan. Then comes the ethnic group, and f- and finally comes humanity. Finally comes hu- all of humanity. Of course, Whoa. humans in general are a valuable store of our genetic interests. 
Yeah, so you were talking about how, in a very cold and pragmatic way, I suppose, a very academic way, but you were talking about how um, by us having cousins, for example, they're perpetuating a significant part of our genes. And uh, I don't remember the exact ratio, but if uh, you'll jump into a river, you'd sacrifice your life to jump into a river to save two siblings or uh, was it four cousins, something like that. Uh, it was just a, a metaphor to explain that uh, if you're acting completely rationally in in the biological interest of perpetuating your genes, um, this extends towards other vectors of transmission other than child-rearing itself um, in that, for example, the the ethnic or the ethnic group uh, also contains a greater portion of uh, similar genes to yours or identical genes to yours than other ethnic groups. And so, therefore, it makes sense that uh, for the individual to be interested in perpetuating the ethnic group and uh, furthering its interests... Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And this is a big change from the 19th century assumption, uh, evolutionary assumption, that that people um, acted to promote the species. And and that that was rejected by 1930 by the people who, uh, the theoreticians who developed um, neo-Darwinism. We don't act for the good of the species. and rarely do we act for the good of the race. I mean, that already is a large population. No, no, no. We're, our, our social horizons are limited by our psychology and by our experience. So, um, so at the center of this is an, a theoretical problem that, that perplexed Darwin, which is altruism. Why do humans, and not only humans, other species, some other species as well, sacrifice themselves for other individuals? That seemed, that troubled Darwin because he didn't have a concept of the gene, you see. He, he had the idea that characteristics are passed on, that there must be some, some way in which that is done, particles of inheritance. But he, he, he wondered how, for example, social insects is where the theory was developed and then applied to humans later. And uh, social insects will um, sacrifice themselves for the queen because the queen does the reproduction. Now, in humans, this theory was developed by uh, Bill Hamilton, an English ethologist, and uh, a professor had put the problem to him. Isn't it something like this, very much along the lines you were just saying, John, isn't it something like this, that it's adaptive for me to save from drowning, say, two of my children, each of you carries half of my genes, right? Each, each of your children carries half your genes. So wouldn't it be adaptive to lose your life um, saving from drowning two of your children? Or eight cousins, because cousins have carry one eighth of your genes of the each person's genes, and uh, so that's a very intuitive uh, way of putting it. So Hamilton developed um, uh, some mathematics to express that. That math, those mathematics published in 1964 have now swept the field, and it's it's standard theory in behavioral biology. This is the, the core, this is the basis of, um, of altruism. Now, the theory has been elaborated, especially in the case of humans, been elaborated beyond that now. Um, there's, there's, there are models of 
group selection, for example, not just kin selection and so on and so forth, but the, at the core, the most consolidated theory is that of uh, inclusive fitness. It's called the theory of inclusive fitness, which is that a gene that causes um, someone, an individual, to um, show altruism in that way, you know, like saving two offspring or saving eight cousins, such a gene can actually spread through the through the gene pool, even though it, even though it causes self sacrificial behaviour. So that that's a that's a key insight around which I base the book on genetic interests. And the question I asked myself was this: Okay, so the theory's been worked out in with relation to close kin, right? Offspring, grandchildren, that sort of thing. What about fellow ethnics? Could the theory, could Hamilton's theory of inclusive fitness be applied to um, cooperation within ethnic groups or solidarity, you know, patriotism within ethnic groups? Well, maybe, but the first thing we'd need to know is what ethnic kinship is. Notice with, with cousins, we know that they carry an eighth of our genes and children we know carry half our genes. But how can we apply that same logic to ethnic groups if we don't know what ethnic kinship is? Is it? And I assumed when I began thinking about this that it was vanishingly small, a thousandth of a parental, a parental uh, kinship, I assumed. And... Uh, and then I began developing theory. You know, if it turned, if that turned out, I began writing to geneticists around the world, asking their help. They weren't very helpful until Henry Harbending from uh, America did reply and said uh, <laughs> something like, "I think you're asking the wrong question." I mean, I, I I was so thoroughly confused in my genetics that he had to um, educate me. Say no, 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 no. Here's, here's, you got that wrong. You need to ask that, and so on. And together, we we got to answer my question. And the question is: there's no single answer to the question. What is ethnic kinship? How strong is ethnic kinship? It depends on the comparison being made. And that took a lot of effort on my part to get a grip on that. It's rel- It's all relative. So I'll give you an example. The example I give in the book is this. Imagine three ethnic groups, English, um, Danish, which is very, very closely related ethnic group to the English, and... Um, Bantus, was it? Sub-Saharan, Sub-Saharan African. Okay. Okay. So, and I chose Sub-Saharan African because genetically that's the most distant from uh, Europe, from Europe genetically. Okay, Chinese are relatively close genetically compared to sub-Saharan Africans. Relatively close, still a substantial difference, but but they're much closer to us than are sub-Saharan Africans. So I compared those three. So so the, what I wanted to know was, um, uh, if imagine there's an there's immigration taking place through invasion or peaceful, it doesn't doesn't matter. Imagine there's immigration taking place to England. On the one hand, uh, uh, some uh, uh, 
Danish people come, say 10,000, and all 10,000 Africans come. So what is the impact on, on replacement of English genes? And the answer was there's almost no effect by the Danish, but there is an effect. If 10,000 Danes migrate to England and the population remains, remains the same, there are various assumptions made, population remains the same, so some English have to go. So uh, something like 150, I'll have to look, check up the figures, but something like 150, it's the equivalent of the Eng- English losing 150 children if they're displaced, you see, by 10,000 Danes. But what if they're displaced instead by 10,000 sub-Saharan Africans? Bantu, actually, was the, the uh, super tribe that I was referring to, Bantu. A very, it's a very successful, large African ethnic group. What about Bantu? Well, it's in the multiple thousands. The multiple thousands of children are lost in equivalence, if one just looks at the number of genes are lost. So that that gives so it, in other words, migrants aren't all the same, and ethnic kinship is not all the same. It depends on the compar- comparisons being made. Okay, so uh, that's there. There is a degree of complexity in that book, in that analysis. Yes, Frank, um, um, and it was on it's on that basis that uh, I concluded that actually it is adaptive to resist replacement-level migration. That's one obvious conclusion to be made from that. If one if one wants to behave, and there always has to be an if, right, because you don't get values, you can't derive values from facts alone. There has to be some uh, value input there, some premise that's a value. But if one, if one values reproductive fitness in a in a neo-Darwinian sense, then one wants to, then one ought to, um, it's adaptive to reduce replacement level migration to a minimum. Yeah, Frank, you talk about the vast genetic differences between the English and the sub-Saharan Africans there. Is there any sort of genetic kinship across the races? Are we one human race or are the such the difference is such that we are two different, almost subspecies, almost? Well, I, I the way I, I, I just follow the mainstream literature and we're all the one species. Um, so, and the way I express that is, imagine that an asteroid hits the Earth, you know, one of those extinction events that, that has happened in the Earth's past. And imagine it happened again. And basically wiped out all, all human populations except, say, some Aborigines living in Central Australia, you know, Alice Springs, right? I actually give this example. I make this example in the book, or some Africans in, uh, you know, in Congo, or something, or, or Indians in India, or something like that. We all benefit immensely by by the fact that they're humans and they're surviving. Okay, so com- compare, compare that to all humans being killed. Well, the, de- the, the, the loss is irreparable, just permanent and total. Our, our genes in, in 
neo-Darwinian terms, our genes have gone, our species is gone. But you know, all human, all humans are, uh, belong to the same species. We have the same number of chromosomes. There are substantial phenotypic differences, you know, like in the skeleton and the hormone system and the nervous system, I suppose, and, and so on and so forth. But we're all, we're all we can all um, uh, interbreed. That's the, one of the definitions of, of uh, species. We can all interbreed and produce fertile offspring. So we're all, we're very similar, like, like 99.6% similar genetically. Okay. But that doesn't mean that's, that's, this is what the left will say and they'll stop there. But there's much more to the story than that. So, you know, there are differences and we have individual and group genetic differences that we are evolved to, uh, compete for. So we are, you know, vive la, la difference. We're, we're evolved to, Look out, look after number one, which is us and our kin and our, our tribe. Even, 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 even if, uh, an alien visiting might say, oh, but these people are so similar. Okay. Some are black and some are white and some are yellow, but basically they're all identical. But if, if that alien looked a bit more closely, he would say, oh, well, actually they're an evolved species. And of course there are, uh, populations, different populations. I, I, I don't get into the debate of whether it's, they, whether they should be called subspecies. That's a, a rather high, heightened debate I, I don't even participate in. Different species, different um, populations of the one species. And uh, most evolution takes place on that basis between among, among individuals and among group. Fair enough. Um, just to follow that up then, uh, would you say that considering maybe even from a non-relative perspective, uh, I know that you're saying if you compare two groups and you, you uh, look in that way, you can find differences. Would you say that um, Europeans or whites in general uh, could be classed as one category? Or Because I, I know this is a, a category that the left often targets and uh, tries to break down and say, Look, at one time, Irish weren't considered white by, uh, I think it was Madison Grant in America um, and all these things. But is there a concrete uh, white group or uh, ethnicity or race that you could actually point to and say, yes, this is it? Well, there are always blurred boundaries, quite often blurred boundaries, among populations that have been there for a long time. Um, But... There are also blurred boundaries in the uh, in a rainbow, and does that mean that orange? Does that mean that blue does not not exist because it merges into uh, green and so on? Um, so yes, there are there is there are it's very clearly a European race. Um, there's been tremendous developments in that area, by the way, over the last twenty years. Uh, twenty years ago. The, the realization was, the understanding was based on Caval- people such as Cavalli Sforza, this Italian, uh, uh, geneticist did, did amazing work with his team. He was based at Stanford in the United States. And what we knew was that the genetic difference among Europeans differences, there are genetic differences. 
even within countries, like, for example, between different parts of England, there are, they call them zones of, of steep genetic change, right? Now, those differences are small, but still dis- distinct. Uh, and they, they, they typically follow uh, um, ancient borders, like between different, like between Wales and England, or between England and uh, and different parts on the outer of England, or between France and Germany, or between um, Italy and France, and so on. And the I think this is reasonable to call these ethnic differences. These are not racial differences; these are ethnic differences. So it's known that the differences among uh, genetic Variation within Europe is small compared to the variation between Europeans in, say, Africa or China or, you know, Central Asia. Um, now we know much more. So one thing that's transformed that is the ancient DNA. So our store of ancient DNA is just amazing now, consisting of several hundred um, skeletons. And uh, it's been found that uh, the DNA can often be reclaimed from ancient skeletons. And uh, so the database and and sequencing is now cheap. Like in in the year 2000, when the first um, human genome was sequenced, it cost like a million dollars per sequencing. Now it costs much less. There are machines that just spit it out, complete sequencing of the human genome. And uh, so studying ancient DNA... Allows has allowed uh, the genetic history of Europe and, and other countries, of course, other areas, to be to be documented. And it looks like Europe, the European population, is the result of three main genetic uh, sources. The first is the uh, Cro-Magnon hunter-gatherers, who came in maybe thirty, forty thousand years ago. Forgive me for the numbers aren't all correct. It's not my area of expertise. I just know the, the broad outlines. So the Cro-Magnon initial uh, immigrants came and were hunter-gatherers. Then uh, in the Neolithic, so we're talking about 12,000 years ago, from about 12,000 years ago, the Neolithics gave rise to... Uh, large-scale population increase in the Near East, you know, Syria, Tigris and Euphrates and so on, that area. And they began pouring out. One of the first territories they uh, expanded into was modern-day Turkey. And um, they weren't Turks. Turks are a recent population that moved into that area about, you know, a 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. You know, Turkey, and then the population increased. We're talking increases of 100-fold. When a population goes from hunting and gathering to even just simple agriculture, a 100-fold increase. And then, then they tend to swamp hunter-gatherer populations at their periphery. So then they went from Turkey in and colonised Europe, these, these farmers called primitive farmers, and they came in two avenues. One was along the north, northern Mediterranean, you know, Greece, Italy, and so on. And the other was through Central Europe. And uh, and they arrived 
at northwestern Europe at the end. Uh, that, 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 that took them the longest to reach there by about 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. And they ge- genetically transformed Europe. So that was the second wave. So the primitive farmers coming from the Near East. Uh, and then the third wave came about 2000 BC. And they're the Amnaya. And the Amnaya came from uh, the Caucasus area, the, that broad area of steppe. And they had the wheel and they uh, had the cow, right? So they, and cows are a super, really efficient, f- productive f- f- source of food. And they're also tasty. And, and you can eat them and you can eat much more from their milk than if you just kill them, if you just eat them. You get much more from the milk. Uh, and a cow will yield on an acre, on an area of land, will yield something like three times. Again, I'm not sure of the actual number, but something like three times what a farmer can yield by by growing oats or rye or whatever the crop might be. And they were mobile as well because they had they relied on animals that can walk. And they invented the um, wheel. And so these and their language was Indo-European. So the Indo-European language group stretches from Ireland to Western China. It's been a, a transform, transformative um, uh, uh, effect on, on Europe. And the Amnaya had a, a hyper-militarised culture. And there's a game theoretical basis for that because uh, in, in an open area like that, um, an aggressive, aggressive group strategy tends to be successful, tends to overcome more, more, more pacifist cultures. And so, and the, the process gets going. It's called balance of power. The balance of power theory for this is that, uh, everyone has to, <clears throat> every culture has to militarize. <clears throat> Otherwise, they just get, Absorbed, they get conquered and absorbed. So you know, all of these old cultures we we think about, um, whether it be the uh, um, Anglo-Saxons and Jutes who took over when the Romans left England, four fifty AD. Very just a militaristic oath. Though they were very simple, they were farmers, again herders, but militaristic. Um, and the same thing goes for the Vikings getting more more recent, and the same thing goes for, for example, the Anglo-Saxons who descended from them, who were then conquered by the Normans in 1066. The Normans were even more militaristic. So the aristocracy was a militaristic arist- aristocracy, while in other parts of the world, that the that process did not continue. So, for example, when the Indo-Europeans uh, conquered northern India, starting roughly 2000 BC, um, when they pacified and and conquered that vast area, at that 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 early stage, as I understand it, the um, the caste system began to be developed. And the senior-ranking caste was military, 
but that didn't last too long because in, and uh, the um, religious caste uh, took over as the most most illustrious caste. So you know this was a very much a part of European heritage or Indo-European heritage, but it had exceptions in different different parts of its of its realm. Those those uh, in, invaders from Northern Europe were, of course, Indo-European speakers, and their language helped inspire the, the linguists who discovered the Indo- Indo-European language groups. So, well, considering all of these um, pressures, you know, you're saying warfare um, in terms of what food was available and all these things. Um, I imagine geography also played an extremely large part in this. Um, did all these evolutionary pressures uh, impact eventually the personalities and, and I suppose the cult, the cultures that flow from those personalities of these different population groups? For example, we see uh, uh, disparate crime rates. That's something that was in the news recently in Australia. In Queensland, there was a, uh, a Sudanese man who stabbed a innocent old uh, white woman and uh, this raised a, a conversation, uh, particularly among conservatives, about, um, you know, why do, are they behaving this way? You know, they don't have the excuse of colonialism or of slavery that they have in other countries, yet they're still behaving much like Sudanese or uh, African, Sub-Saharan Africans act in general across the world in, in various different countries. Um, and, of course, my answer has been to this, that's actually rooted in uh, the populations themselves, in their, in their uh, genes, uh, and this manifests in culture and, and the, uh, I suppose, what you could call a warlike culture, like you're describing, um, and uh, as a result, it, it yields them the benefits of game theory in some ways. Um, that, that, sorry, that uh, a warlike culture uh, yields in game theory. Um, is this correct? Is this a correct interpretation uh, based on you know, your research and uh, what the genetic science tells us? I think there's truth in it for sure. For example, taking these these uh, um, uh, Amnaya uh, warlike uh, cultures that um, conquered um, Europe and conquered diff- different parts of Eurasia, um, yes, it paid off to be warlike. It paid off to have a short fuse. It paid off to uh, to be aggressive. It paid off to have, therefore, relatively high testosterone, right? Because testosterone is a in in men, in men and women as a, a predictor of uh, aggression aggressive aggressive behavior um so uh and that's that's true of herding cultures everywhere models i've seen this is just game theoretical so it's speculative but games theoretically uh herding cultures tend to have a short fuse and also tend to adopt Honor cultures, and the reason is that if you're you're herding a lot of sheep or goats or whatever, and uh, your your wealth can be stolen much more than if you're raising corn, you're growing a crop, because your enemy then has to come in and you know cut you know harvest, do the harvesting, do the work, and then take away all this low low quality food. But if you've got cows or or sheep or goats, they can be driven away. In an hour, they can be gone. And they're high value, really high value. So the lifestyle can select uh, genes. And um, and uh, a, a, a recent example of that, uh, uh, 
concerns um, what's called genetic pacification. And this is an interesting body of theory. The, the most important theorist is Peter Frost. His name is Peter Frost. He's done work with, with the late Henry Harbending. And he looked, began, began by looking at the Roman Empire and, and trying to establish a reproductive model, modeling of the effects of capital punishment on the level of aggression shown by, by Romans. And there, wherever the Roman Empire went, they set up a legal system which had a really, inflicted really high death rates. I mean, ec- execution rates on, uh, on murderers and thieves and so on. They didn't have. They they didn't spend so, so much resources on imprisoning people in in nice air conditioned prisons with coloured TVs. They just, if you were guilty, you were hung or killed in some way, and if you weren't guilty, then you might survive. And um, so he, different authors have looked at this uh, in different countries and gone back and looked at the records, and there was an extraordinarily high rate. In the Roman Empire, Roman days, and then later on, after the Norman conquests in England, for example, very high rates of execution of uh, aggressive people, of, of wrongdoers, you know, law, lawbreakers, and it was sufficiently high to have an evolutionary effect, a selective effect on gene frequencies. So, um, the the modelling and the evidence indicates doesn't prove, but just but it indicates that genetic pacification is real and the populations that have been subjected to that uh, are just generally more peaceful, have lower mortality rates, lower murder rates, low, lower assault rates and so on. So that's, that's an approach which is uh, interesting. And then there's uh, a general background effect of, uh, of cold climates. So there's another theory which argues that there are the broad racial effects of races having living in different environments, and those environments exert different selection pressure. And one of those is on family behaviour. The way the way the argument the argument is pretty straightforward. It says when humans migrated out of Africa, they entered a, a radically new radically novel environment like snow, really cold and really long winters that were so harsh that if you didn't have a division of labour and strong family units, extinction would follow. Those individuals would just die. And what happens in, 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 in Eurasia, right across Eurasia, is because of these harsh long winters, if, if the family is not stable, you know, with with the with the husband basically looking after the the women and children, providing providing them with meat uh, during the winter, uh, they all die. So that that's the argument, and uh, and uh, that example you gave of uh, uh, Sudanese young men in being aggressive in Australia, there's there are many examples of depending on the comparison one chooses. For example, East Asians, that's Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, those populations went through severe bottlenecks, repeated bottlenecks as, as the Ice Ages came and went, came and went. Um, and they have 
those populations have lower rates of divorce. They have lower rates of uh, aggressive or violent crime, okay, than Europeans. So this is, this is uh, what I like about the, the, this sort of research is that it, it, it uh, is clearly not a matter of, uh, of chauvinism, of ethnic or racial chauvinism. You know, it, it can be rather suspicious when some researchers invariably come up with whites being at the top of the, being at the apex of the evolutionary tree. It's, just, it's a little bit suspicious, right? Uh, it's more likely that uh, different populations will have strengths and weaknesses depending on their, and different characteristics depending on the environment that they experienced and, and selection took place. So, that's um, understandable. I think it's also visible in the counterexample of the low um, marriage rates or the, the low fatherhood rates of American Af- uh, African Americans, as well as as well as around the world. Um, so it's definitely that, borne that out. It, yeah. Yes. It, yes, it does fit. It does fit. But I have to say that the um, that Europeans, white people, show um, significantly higher rates of divorce. Uh, than East East Asians, so it it cuts various ways, and it's it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of observation of yes. data gathering. Do you, know? you see these? Um, oh, sorry, I'll let you go in a moment, Matthew. But do you see these trappings of our genetics of our um, of various different groups? Is that escapable um, by the people living within the generation? Uh, can it can it be overcome, or is that something that can only be changed by generations of, um, of you know, the selective pressures, like you were saying, um, that would weed out the genes that would lead to these disfavorable or uh, unappealing behaviors? Well, I, th- I think culture can, culture plays a huge role, uh, and uh, um, culture can can have effects that uh, can disguise. You know, can counteract some of these genetic tendencies. One one example, for example, for example, is um, um, the sexual revolution in the United States, which began in the nineteen sixties. Okay, so in the nineteen fifties, the divorce rate across the board was uh, much lower than it is now, and the rates of um, children being born out of wedlock was. It was scandalous. It was a Christian country. It was considered uh, uh, very embarrassing to have a child who or a daughter who got pregnant, for example, out of out of wedlock. That's very common now. So then came the sexual revolution of the nineteen sixties, and began attacking, in effect, began attacking and undermining the the cultural buttress of the marriage culture, okay, and the child-caring culture, and began stripping away those those cultural props. Now, what I'm giving by those, not this is not my theory. I'm just reporting um, some interesting theory, partly speculative, but I'll just I'll just I'll just continue. So, it affected different populations differently. Um, those populations were thrown back more on their evolved proclivities or evolved tendencies. So, so goes the argument. 
Um, so that, for example, um, East Asians uh, were not as badly affected as uh, as Europeans. European, the best data in America, uh, European Americans and uh, European Americans were not as affected as African Americans, who who reverted more to their historical um, family behaviour. And so you had a, a tremendous rise. We, we, we saw a tremendous rise in uh, uh, mar- uh, childbirth outside of marriage. Frank? Um, okay. Do you, do you see culture. stuff like the sexual revolution, this uh, very rapid change in culture as kind of a groundswell democratic thing with all the youth? Or was it a change in the elite that allowed these ideas to permeate through universities, colleges and schools and to change the minds of the youth? Um, I think I see, I see it personally as a top-down, a top-down elite-led movement and it was uh, involved popular culture and, and uh, which was changing, of course, as well. So it became centralised, a tremendous centralisation of... Uh, of uh, popular culture, which had been more family and regional based, so that happened. Um, the television, television, for example, um, but also then uh, the university system had longer had longer term effects, I think. But I, I see it essentially as, and as is top that down. The case with most of these kind of cultural inflection points is it most of the time top down from the elites. I don't know. I can't. I can't comment on that. I'd have to have to think about that. Fair enough. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, you gave a good treatise to how genes affect culture and how we can uh, overcome this somewhat. But um, one thing that uh, I often, uh, you know, come back to, and which uh, I think really explains the behavioural differences and uh, differences in achievement between different groups, is um, different. IQ measurement or average IQs among these groups um, and so I know that there's a lot of controversy around this stirred up by the left but from any reputable source that I've ever read uh, non-ideological source um, it seems clear that IQ is largely genetic and IQ is also very consequential um, or sorry general intelligence as measured by the IQ measurement is uh, very consequential in uh, a person's ability to work certain jobs or perform a certain level of tasks and uh, various other things as well, um, their behaviour, their, their uh, manner and all these things. Um, what do you make of this? Do you place uh, a large amount of uh, what is measured by IQ as being genetic or a smaller amount and uh, do you think it's as consequential as uh, many nationalists make it out to be? Um, I think... Once, once uh, environment is roughly equalised, right? Um, I, 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 IQ differences become largely genetic, but you have to roughly equalise the environment first. I'll give you an example: two, two, two fields of corn. Okay, just picture in your mind's eye: two fields of corn, identical genetically, right? 
And, and it's easy to make one of those fields, uh, short, grow shorter than the one just beside it. You simply water, you feed one more and give it more water. Identical genetics and yet very different phenotypes. Phenotypes, you know, the, the way the, the organism looks. Um, so once, but once you've roughly, roughly equal, you know, equaled out the environment, which is mainly food and health, public health, for example, and food. Uh, once, once that's roughly equivalent, then the evidence is overwhelming that it's uh, between 50 and 80% genetic. These are differences in IQ between 50 and 80% genetic. Um, now, the next question is, so what? Well, Again, the data are overwhelming that populations differ in average, and I emphasize average IQ, there's tremendous range within each population. And that means that when these populations are mixed, brought, you know, due to immigration typically, when they're mixed, they will stratify themselves very, really quickly, like within one, one or two generations, they'll stratify themselves. So, yes, there'll be interpenetration. In class terms, of course, a lot of interpenetration because there are clever and dull people in every, in every population. But because the averages are different, overall they're, they, they're stratified. And it, it seems to me that this is a major cause of conflict in the United States. Um, Africans are aware that they're on average poorer, that they f- they, they're vastly overrepresented in the, in jails, right? And, uh, and so that makes them easy pickings for, uh, propagandists and, uh, identity politics, um, on, on, entrepreneurs. Okay. So, so, so the ethnic, ethnic diversity alone, ethnic and racial diversity alone can cause uh, polarization and conflicts and so on, but that's nothing compared to when those groups are different ethnic groups are ranked, have different average wealth. Okay. Well, it's played so, itself out in constant dissatisfaction among Aboriginal well, Australians about why they are in such different uh, situations, have such different living standards and resources compared to uh, Anglo Celtic or European Australians. Um, and so this is, you know, it's manifesting itself in this constant grievance politics and I think most notably the voice. Exactly. And uh, so they've been sort of weaponized against uh, the majority population by a very intelligent or I don't know if intelligent, but a conniving political elite um, and academic elite who have been able to, without them understanding fully, um, use them, turn them against those who might even want to help them in many cases. Of course, um, yeah, I no, think I'll that's, follow I think up. That's uh, correct. No, Aboriginals do have a, uh, is it a 70, low 70s IQ on average? Is that correct? Um, that's work by Lynn. However, I've got to say that the data are thin. So I, I treat that and it's, it's, it's a radically low measure, 70, average 70. But we know that the with this, there's far more data on on hybrids because most Aborigines now are hybrids. They're, they're you know half white or three quarters white. 
and the average there is in the 80s, something something similar to um, African-Americans. So I, w- I wouldn't put too much store in, in some of those low figures because it's not based on much much evidence. But the evidence is, is in that direction. That is true. You, you, you've stated it correctly, but I, I just caution about that. But notice, notice the importance of closing the gap. This comes up again and again and again. It's in this, in the, the weekend paper again today. A big article. And yet the gap on, never the closes, right? Closing the gap. The gap but never they closes. Never, but they never discuss causes of the gap that lie in indigenous culture and genes. Just rarely, rarely discussed. Now, I think there are causes outside the indigenous population, culture and the genes. Of course there are causes outside. They've had their way of life disrupted, massively disrupted. They've been subjected to um, European diseases. Uh, they've, they're... Uh, their social hierarchies and social networks have been dis- disrupted by the colonial experience. Of course, that's all true. But for, but for serious analysts to ignore major causes such as culture, you know, domestic culture and uh, an IQ is is outrageous. It's just it's just unacceptable. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the analysis can simply be thrown out and we need to start again and say to them, say to these people, listen, before, you know, try again, try again, but for us to take you seriously, please take into account the most obvious, some of the most obvious uh, impacts, like, for example, low IQ, um, low average IQ, I mean. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's found, for example, um it's found in now. I'm trying to rec- recall the country where the studies have been done, but where one takes people of r- different um, ethnic groups—some poor, some wealthy, on average, and so on—but you sample you sample people of the same uh, IQ, say, same the same IQ. Then the differences between those those individuals are dramatically reduced. Now, that's a nice experimental study. So you, you know, say you're studying people with uh, average ninety IQ, which is m- mainstream. That's ninety IQ is normal range, getting towards the bottom of the normal range. And you do Aboriginal, you select Aborigines, you select Chinese, you select um, white people, you select you know different populations, different individuals from different populations with that ninety IQ. And look, then, then follow them through at their life outcomes, their average income, you know, their wealth at age forty, at age fifty, and uh, there are differences, which shows that yes, there are sociological effects, but they're minimal in their impact. Yes, well, uh, taking all that into account, what we, you've told us about IQ, what you've told us about different behavioural differences, the salience of genes, um, the importance of perpetuating our genes as a, a biological function, um, I suppose I'll ask you to touch on it briefly, but what's your thoughts on exogamy? I think you caught it in the book or um, more colloquially known as uh, uh, mixing races by you know marrying uh, outside of your race. Uh, what, what's your opinions on this? 
Um, I, I, I don't give advice, for example. I don't give advice on that, but I do look at the... What would be the effect. positives and negatives? Yeah, exactly. What if you observe? I look at the, look at the effect on fitness. And uh, one, one, and uh, there's not much data, uh, as far as I'm aware. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, not not too much data to draw on. So, um, one thing I did in the book was uh, uh, track down genetic models of kinship within the family. So, uh, humans uh, we're called um, slow life. We have a slow life uh, strategy, which means we have we, we live for a long time, and we invest in our, in our children and on and you know over several decades. It's called slow life theory or K selection. We're K selected, and um, this depends intense parental investment in children very. You know, because the children, babies are born completely helpless. They rest completely on parental, especially mother, uh, protection and feeding and so on and so forth. And then it goes through and then the man goes out and provides as well for the family. This intense investment in the children evolved because the children carry the parents' genes. Otherwise, the parents don't have a stake in those children. See? That's why... The family is a, a human universal, and um, and all around the world, parents, people have the same adaptations for children. We all find babies cute. We want to protect them. We don't want them hurt. Uh, you know, uh, women especially are sensitive to cries, different sorts of cries, pain cry, um, fear cry, and so on from their babies. We have all these adaptations for looking after our children. But that, all those adaptations evolved because the children carry our genes, half half our genes each. Okay, so I I asked the question in the book. So if people marry between races, does that affect the um, amount of genes carried by a child? You know, of of the parents. Does it affect it? If it does affect it, I had no idea, but if it does affect it, wouldn't that lower the the fitness outcome of that child? And to cut a long story short, what I found was, again using the um, genetics of Henry Harbin, what I found was that um, marrying between races uh, produces children who are less genetically related to the parents than if one marries within one's own race, right? Can, could you follow that or do I need to re-explain it? No, that makes sense. So, and the, the, the effect can be quite dramatic. Um, you know, if, 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 the, if the races are genetically very different, then the uh, children, and by the way, the children are intrinsically precious in their own right. They're human beings. This is not somehow the fault of the child uh, or or meaning that, that bad mistreatment of the child is somehow justified. None of that is true. I'm just referring technically to the number of genes shared between parents and children and inter, 
when the mar- when the uh, marriage take place takes place between races, then the children are somewhat less uh, uh, efficient carriers of the parents' genes, and so. What does that mean? Well, one one effect is that the parents would have to have more children uh, when they marry between races. They'd have to have more children to make up that those lost genes. I'm not saying they do. I'm just saying what, speculatively what would the effect be. Um, um, and there might be, again, I and I don't have data on this, but they, there might be less parental care on average when between parent and child when when the um, marriage is taking place between marriage between races but look all my caveats indicate that a lot more research is needed in this area i i can't make a cut and dried statement either way frank at the start you talked about your experiences in um, the australian academic scene and how closed off and how there's this ideological uh, gap and um, speaking from my experience, I, I did learn about genetic altruism and, um, you know, gene culture co-evolution and stuff in university and high school. Do you think that this ideological aversion mm. to these topics is changing in Australian uh, academic scenes or do, is there still a roadblock in, in being able to discuss these ideas freely? I don't. I don't know. I, 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 to be sure, I'd need to survey, you know, more schools and uh, universities and so on. But uh, my impression is that it remains. The problem remains. Okay, so uh, I have children at school. I've had still one child at school. I've, I see, if anything, a radicalization of the curriculum. Um, now. This raises problems for the ideologues who would who would censor and distort our our curricula, because um, this is based. These ideas are based on mainstream biology and genetics. So, you know, it's probably impossible for them to completely block those ideas. But they won't be applying them to their students. They won't be applying them to humans. Uh, or especially to the West. It's a lot to take into account. I think we'd all like to see a lot more research in that field. We have the tools now, and um, it really is only ideology, it seems, that's holding us back from making a lot of breakthroughs on this field. Uh, in this field. Um, I, we're approaching the end of the episode, so I'll say thank you for joining us, Dr. Salter. Um, perhaps just before we end, you could tell us a little bit about how your involvement in pro-white politics stems from your understanding of and uh, involvement in the scientific uh, literature and research and um, and how it actually uh, presents an alternative to what the current culture offers in terms of uh, perpetuating our genes and, uh, and uh, all these things. Well, um, in a way, of course I'm, I'm pro-white because I'm, that, that, that's, they're, they're my people. My people are one of many uh, white ethnic groups, but my theory is applicable to all ethnic groups. It's applicable to everyone. Okay, so, uh, and to be honest, uh, maybe it's my Christian upbringing, but I'm sympathetic to people people's aspiration to thrive and see their children and grandchildren do well and so on. So 
But um, in that vein, I can't emphasize enough how profound, how profound the fitness effect of, of uh, looking after one's people can be. So our ethnic groups are now, if you accumulate those several ethnic groups that form races, they constitute vast families in terms of genes. Now, what, what, how much does a typical family, how many copies of each mem, uh, each member's genes? It might be the parents have, say, a large family, say four children. Each child carries 50% of the parents' genes. So each parent in those children has two, two copies of his or her genome, okay, on average. So a large family might be – imagine, though, that um, you really set about having – because there are some pop, some populations, some cultures in, in the world that have an average of six or eight children. Say it's six children, then you've, you've created three copies of, of, of your genome if you're a parent, or, or uh, ten children, five copies – now, that might sound large, that's, that's healthy and everything, but a, a, a modest-sized ethnic group of a million people can carry thousands upon thousands of copies of, of its members' genomes, thousands and thousands of copies. So the welfare of one's people, of one's ethnic group and one's, I suppose, one's race, if one wants to take it to that large scale, um, uh, the welfare is is very important if one is concerned about reproductive fitness. Um, so that's that's a that's a starting finding point for me when I when I realised that, I thought, oh, so so some of these instincts we have, like ethnocentrism and uh, preferring the company of of uh, people who are similar to us, and uh, and so on. Uh, and feeling protective towards our own people as well. Oh, it's it's ac- these are adaptations. They're not they're not just some defect with human nature. These are adaptations. The very things that that uh, the left uh, criti- criticizes as uh, as as aberrations are in fact adaptations. They're evidence of health and flourishing. So that's that's the that's the way that this uh, one of the ways that this research has has uh, has influenced me. I just wanted to mention something at the end. There's a, a weird thing that's a very interesting thing that's that's been happening over the last 10, 15, 20 years, and that's a reversal of a previous trend. Um, the left now, which is and I talk, refer to the left broadly. Because they're in in charge of uh, very strong in the in our elites at public institutions, they're referring more and more to ethnic groups as races. They're using the word race more and more, and I think because they find it triggering among themselves. So for them, it's a politicized ideological term, race, it's a very negative one, of course, because they 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 don't want any any racial behaviour, at least among white people. They don't want racial behaviour. 
white racially protective behaviour. But if one goes back in history, for example, in the 1930s, in the lead-up to the World War II, the rise of the Nazis and so on, the left did the opposite. It was a, a leftist agenda, and I think a valid one, to point out that the so-called racial differences that the Nazis were going on about, like, we must defend our race and all the rest of it, and the left, leftist intellectuals made the point, hold on a moment, you're not a race, you're an ethnicity. Largely cultural differences, minimal genetic differences within Europe, say between France and uh, Germans or between Germans and Swedes and so on. Um, and they said they invented this term. It had not been in common usage uh, he invented the term ethnic group or ethnic and ethnicity, meaning at its core a descent group. Yes, cultural differences, but at its core an ethnic group believe that it's descended, the members believe they are descended from the same ancestors. So it's a form of kinship, symbolic, believed kinship, and that's what makes them cohere, okay? And I think they won that intellectual battle. And so after World War II, uh, partly in reaction to the barbarism of the Nazis, um, partly in re reaction to that, the word ethnicity spread and became uh, very common and was, and you know, ra the, the, the concept of race still had validity, but a narrower, a narrower validity. Race refers only to the physical differences, the genetic differences, genetically caused differences, not the cultural differences, and certainly not differences based on belief of ancestry. Okay? So ethnicity became the main workhorse, the, uh, the conceptual workhorse of anthropologists and linguists and so on. So things are now they're going in the reverse direction. Now why would the why would progressive progressives who have all the elite power, why would they want to start using this term to to describe um right wing ideology? Well I think they do it because they see it as a and I think they correctly see it as a triggering word uh among themselves. Right, so they want to mobilize each other. They want to get each other up, fighting, doing, you know, campaigning and, and so on. And so they're using this really harsh, stark term, race. Of course, which goes with racism and so on. So that's an interesting phenomenon. And I think, and I think it, uh, it should be resisted. I think we should stick to the scientific, well established, scholarly concept of of ethnicity and when i when i use the the word race i mean race i don't mean an ethnic group that belongs to a larger race so the english are not a race the english are an ethnic a european ethnic group or ethnicity or as i say in the book ethne uh, using more of a i'm anglicizing the, the concept so that's the final uh, remark Thanks very much for your time.
Thanks for joining Thanks us, for joining Dr. Salter. We, we appreciate everything that you've had to tell us. I certainly learned a lot. Um, I encourage everyone to check out um, the, your book on the genetic interests. And uh, you might want to talk about your more recent book, which is written for a more popular audience, uh, Anglophobia. Um, I was a massive fan of it. It really lays out the whole case of um, the political progression within Australia um, away from uh, looking after, looking after the, the core Anglo-Celtic Anglo uh, racial group all the way to way now to attacking and slandering uh, our, ancestors our ancestors and our history and our culture and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the people and in general. And, uh, and uh, I, I highly recommend uh, I highly you wrote that. You're the author that, of Anglophobia, Anglophobia and you're also the former also the president of the British Australian community. So would you like to tell the audience where they can find all these things? Yeah, but first of all, the first author is Harry Richardson. He actually drafted the book, and uh, I, I provided some scientific and scholarly assistance. But the, uh, the the brilliance of that book's conception is Harry Richardson, the president, the current president of the British Australian community. I so I reckon we've had him on the pod as well at some point. Yeah, I strongly recommend that. Um, so if people want to join the BAC, it's twenty five dollars, and if you're a student, I think it's less. I think we've managed to keep it down. It's not expensive. You can join online. Uh, there are no questions asked. Uh, people can join as community members. And uh, we really welcome welcome you because we have, we have to start sticking up for ourselves. We have to start defending ourselves. Our ethnic families are important and uh, they deserve to be defended as other ethnic groups do, as other peoples do in Australia, in the multicultural system. They have their own social clubs, their own uh, defence agencies, if they're well organised, and I think we should be doing the same in Australia. This has been the, the tragedy of of the West, especially of the Anglosphere over the last 70 years, as aggressive political multiculturalism was inflicted on our countries without never with a democratic vote. And we needed these uh, organisations to stick up for us, to stand up for us and to coordinate us, coordinate our our activities and to speak up for us and to lobby, uh, to lobby politicians and bureaucrats and the media and the school system. And we're doing what we can, but we can't do more without your help. So, join, you can actually make a difference because a, 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 only a small number of people are involved politically and in cultural uh, politics. So, you can make a real difference if you join the BAC and get active. And if anyone's and if interested anyone's in finding out more about that, more about that, we covered, we covered uh, the organisation and book in greater depth in, depth, uh, in uh, Frank Salter's Frank first appearance uh, uh, on the Backbench uh, Drivers, Drivers podcast. podcast. Um, thank um, you thank to you everyone for listening. For listening. Thank, thank you for joining me, joining Matt, me Matt, and Dr. Dr. Salter. Um, make sure that uh, you go check out the nationaljob.co where you can find all of our previous episodes, future episodes and articles. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media. You'll find it linked on various Places, Telegram, Telegram X, X. Um, and, thank, and you thank you for joining us. Have a great week, guys. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Thanks, John.